Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, y'all, I know you want to get to the podcast, but hear me out. If you are from the Dallas Opera Network platform, if you are from the Sirius XM platform, you need to get our show onto your airwaves. And this, my ad, new, this ad is for you specifically. <laughs> a new method in targeted advertisements coming to you directly from George Cedarquist's brain. I would love I'm, this show to be available at Target. I think that's what you meant. I mean, Opera Box Score has everything. You want to talk like about uh, uh, important singers, composers, works of art. Well, you can just look at any one of our Hall of Fame segments where we do an in-depth analysis of various works, uh, of various composers and singers. Uh, or you can look to our uh, Spring Training for Your Ears segments where we talk about specific operas and really do deep dives and deep analysis. Like Frau or something. The, the opera everybody's been trying to but learn about. <laughs> and that, yeah. Yeah. But we're not just we're not just looking backwards, everyone. We have one third of our show every week dedicated to bringing you the hottest opera takes about what's going on in the current events. And uh, we were pretty focused on a lot of stories that have become popular right now before they were cool. So we're also your one stop shop for countertenors. We've had Nicholas Tamanya, we've had Justin Davies, we've had Anthony Roth Costanzo, we've had Justin Kim. If they're a countertenor, we probably have had them as a guest on our show. But if you're a countertenor who hasn't been on our show yet, there is room for you too. Last but not least, you know that we love sports on this show as well. If you've listened to sports on Sirius XM, or of course, if you're in Dallas, we know that you love football more than you love opera. And we know there is no football coming this fall. So you might as well check us out. Enjoy the show. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. From the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago, I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. This week, the reckoning begins. We're recording this episode on Monday, July 20th. The same day, A-list artists like Joyce DiDonato and Lisette Oropesa called on the Richard Tucker Foundation to denounce one of its board members after a series of racist comments on social media. This, after a week full of articles and editorials addressing classical music's race problem and MiddleClassArtist.com's data-driven spotlight on racial inequality in opera, sheesh, we weigh in on the ruckus and chalk talk. Then creative consultant Oliver Camacho goes inside the huddle with one of the most exciting and talented American baritones of his generation. That baritone would be Theo Hoffman. That generation would be Generation Y. 27 years old, Oliver. Come on. It's too old for you, isn't it? Two-minute drill. If you had to choose between basketball and opera, what would you choose? That's a real situation happening in Italy right now. You can guess which way they went. We'll do a little sports talk here with the whole panel. I cannot believe I'm saying this. Major League Baseball returns on Thursday of this it's back, and the Cubs are hosting the Brewers on Friday. I am so desperate to watch sports. Like, I'm going to block 
everybody else in my family out of the room so I can like focus on this game and actually <laughs> it's happening. Wasn't there an exhibition oh. game between the Sox and the Cubs here in Chicago and the Sox slayed the Cubs? They did. The Cubs were indeed slain in the, I think they were calling it Summer Camp, which is sort of a strange title as well. That's Oliver Camacho, of course. Matt Cummings also on the show tonight. Uh, hi there. How are you? Doing good, along with Weston Williams. Coming to you live from my closet. <laughs> a classic <laughs> pandemic problem for us all. <laughs> all right, let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. So as George said at the top of the show, this has been a crazy week where everybody is talking about race and classical music and opera. Just today, there was the middleclassartist.com super article about how black singers are not cast as much as you would think. And earlier this morning, uh, Ryan McKinney started the call to action. Baritone Ryan McKinney started the call to action for the Richard Tucker Foundation to denounce David Tucker, one of the sons of Richard Tucker, that great American Jewish tenor, um, who probably would have been embarrassed that his son opened his mouth the way he did. All after a week full of articles, um, a couple from New York Times, one from the Washington Post, all talking about this article, about this subject, then a really beautiful article in the New Yorker about Marian Anderson. We're going to talk about later. And blog posts from everybody. It's like everybody's, you know, at home during George Floyd, the post-George Floyd era. And uh, thinking about this, it's something that we've been talking about for a long time. Classic classic opera world being uh, six weeks behind everyone else on the uptake. Yeah. So, Matt, I think you're the one who sort of were were able to frame everything that's happened in the past week uh, really beautifully. Can you tell us what we've learned from various media outlets and bloggers and whatnot? The, the media this week have really been publishing a lot of black voices that have been speaking out since the beginning of this pan, since the beginning of uh, these discussions in the wake of George Floyd, the, the North, the, the New York times article drew heavily on the, the round from L.A. Opera about race that Janae Bridges led, um, just talking about the absolute failure of the opera world to do well by its Black artists and Black audience members and the Black community of the country, the Black communities of all the countries where these arts organizations work. Uh, Just because there is so much continual systemic racism simmering under the surface uh, that often boils over into microaggressions against these these artists. And it really took the time to sit down and reiterate all of these words and all, all of these statements that are so powerful about just the need to be heard and the need to have people listen and take action in this moment. And then uh, there was a similar article in, in Washington Post, uh, which drew from... Jesse Norman's experiences as she wrote in her autobiography. Also testimonials from Lauren, uh, Lauren Michelle, is that her name? Oh my God, I should know her name. And um, Reggie Mobley, Reginald Mobley, who curates that series at uh, the Handel and Haydn uh, Society in, uh, in Boston, 
um, just talking about all these people's experiences and how these organizations need to, you know, really take action. And then, Weston, did you get a chance to look at what um, Zach Finkelstein and his co-author created this for today? I I did, yes. Uh, so uh, this is a sort of a math-heavy one, which uh, was a, a fun experience for me as a uh, humanities major back in college. But <laughs> if I understand it correctly... Uh, statistics. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I first want to say that this is Zach Finkelstein and Jack Lindbergh. Um, they put this together, and um, obviously Zach's a friend of the show, but uh, this kind of very specific analysis was something that I feel like uh, we've been missing a lot in these discussions, um, how it's not just, you know, microaggressions, personal racism, there is a systemic problem that literally affects how uh, people of color, especially black singers, are hired. So this article focused specifically on discrimination in casting uh, black singers at the Metropolitan Opera. And uh, there are a number of caveats uh, to the data. It's not fully complete. Uh, in in some uh, in some parts, um, but they did a really good job of breaking down uh, when black people were represented, why were they represented, versus when they were not represented. Obviously, you know racism. Uh, and uh, here are some sort of highlights. Um, this is from the end of the article. Black singers are far less represented on stage. Just about three percent. Uh, among regular singers at the Met. Um, and they, they defined regular as those who had performed over 100 times at the Opera right, House. Right, exactly. Um, there are, uh, they also pointed out that, uh, they, they basically broke it down into various terms. They used terms like long-term subs, stars, regulars, tenured stars. Um, and this was all based on the amount uh, of promotion you got, the amount of regularity you worked, how many performances you had in a year, uh, whether or not you were being picked up as an emerging artist and were, uh, were given a lot more opportunities early on. Uh, and they found that the majority of regular uh, black singers at the Metropolitan Opera are essentially what they call long-term subs. They're, they're kept around longer, but they're given less opportunity to perform. Um, at the same time, this is what the article says, the Met provides non-black wunderkinds, which is, you know, uh, people who are who star rise right out of the gate with dozens of opportunities to sing in their first few years. And non-black tenured stars are given limitless opportunity to sing for decades, which is in stark contrast to black singers who are uh, who often don't get any opportunities right out of the gate. Um, and of course, I should say, this is only the Met that they were analyzing. But as we've said before on the show, while the Met is not the be-all, end-all of opera in America, it's, it's the largest in America. It's got the most eyes on it. It sets the tone for the rest of the country. And when you have a systemic problem like, the, like this, uh, the Met is like the very large um, kind of bloated canary in the coal mine to let you see what's going on and how uh, black singers are not just being not hired, but those who are hired are being tokenized to say, look, we have black singers in these secondary non-starring roles all the time, you know? And it's one of those things that this article does a really good job of not just pointing that out, but giving numbers to back it up. And I really appreciate it. 
And the numbers I, were, I found to be shocking just because of how low they were for some of the most important artists of their generation, of, mm-hmm. of any singer. Or, or uh, I mean, Leontine Price only had just over 200 performances. She was one of them. And she was heavily marketed as the star of the Metropolitan Opera. I mean, she was the one that they had open up their new house. She was the one who did all these interviews when PBS came to them to do a documentary about the new opera house at Lincoln Center. But when you look at the way that they are divvying up contracts and work, uh, which translates really quickly into clout and pay, the numbers don't back that up. That they that that she would that she's being supported, and that's you know that's one of the best case scenarios in terms of looking at African American singers. It's really kind of a testament to the uh, tendency to use black faces on the stage in order to, as a marketing tool, essentially. Uh, they're not, they tend not to be taken seriously uh, by a lot of these institutions as artists. Uh, and I think that's something that you saw a lot also in all these New York Time art, Times articles, especially with testimonials, where... Uh, um, where uh, singers are being taken on and they're not really being considered artistically. They're just like, they're, they're there. They might have a powerful voice, but their technique isn't commented on. Uh, it's, it's really kind of infuriating. And uh, I should also mention, because the uh, um, Zach's article mentions it as well, um, it says, we chose to focus this article on frequently hired ba- black singers and not black conductors for a reason. There were almost none. And this is one of the things that uh, we have to make sure we keep in mind as we're uh, as we keep hearing more and more about this in the coming months. That uh, there is an incentive for opera companies to put on black singers and say, "Look, look at us. We're not racist." Whereas everything that's just outside the audience's view is still milk white, and that's uh, and that's something that has a lot more consequences, especially in administration. We are talking about who's hiring, who's uh, choosing the season. Uh, And this is something that has to systematically change in opera as soon as possible. Well, it's slow going at the Met. I mean, middle-class artist makes the point that they've hired black conductor Roderick Cox for next season's Barber of Seville. Who knows if that production's even going to happen or not. If Cox conducts every performance that's slated, that is but 10 shows. Mm-hmm. out of you know tens of thousands in the history of this organization so the amount of change that needs to happen is overwhelming and it is far far too late and, and it's clear that that this is reflecting a greater trend you know they i certainly they they're certainly not like progressive and on the front lines of trying to correct the, the issue but even even looking at these numbers, it can be really easy to get bogged down in the specific trivia of someone's career. Like, oh well, the person who has the most performances, you know, that was an that was an old character tenor who sang there for sixty five years. So why are you really comparing him to like these people who were icons and stars? And the point is, uh, what they made their hypothesis is, which is that if you should expect to see similar averages over uh, of what kind of performances people were offered over the years, even after they were hired by the And it's here that that is not the case of how this happened. It's not how it played out. 
Well, and the lack of black artists at the Met, Matt, as you say, is endemic of, of the wider opera system, right? Lawrence Brownlee is the only black artist to win the top prize from the Richard Tucker Foundation, and that was over 10 years ago. And uh, middle-class artists uh, promises to do another data-driven piece on competition soon, uh, but we have to talk about what happened over the course of basically 24 hours. I guess David Tucker, who's on the board of directors for Richard Tucker Foundation and is one of the sons of Richard Tucker, uh, was responding to some uh, tweets that Julia Bullock was uh, making about the protests in Portland. And he said something along the lines of like, yeah, lock up those thugs or something like that. And then Russell Thomas weighed in because he saw this happening. And then... Um, Russell Thomas replied, um, and David Tucker said, pulling the race card is another convenient excuse to modify excellent standards of vocal artistry. So, um, yeah, so so the Black Opera Alliance, which was formed just last month, wrote an open letter to call for David Tucker's removal. And this morning you can find all sorts of A-list artists piling on, like Joyce DiDonato and Lizette Oropresa and Stephanie Blythe. Um, and this afternoon he was removed and now Richard Tucker foundation has announced they are going to form a task force, um, because we need that everywhere task force. It's the new thoughts and prayers. Yes. (laughs) I'm forming a task force. Hopefully a little bit more effective one hopes, but it does get that flavor sometimes. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that now it's something that we can talk about and call it out when it's happening and we see some consequences, which is great. You know, Mm -hmm. I I, I really want to give a shout out to the uh, uh, black opera Alliance. uh, Just a, a really strong kind of resounding victory, uh, you know, right out of the gate, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's hard to call it a victory uh, because really it's just a, uh, really the least they could do is, you know, and I, I looked at some of the, some of the comments that uh, Tucker wrote and there were some pretty awful ones that we didn't even mention here. Um, you know, it, it was very obvious, very kind of surface level stuff, but the fact that within 24 hours, really uh, the Black Opera Alliance was able to put together this, um, this sort of online resistance where people came together and, and basically told the foundation that they needed to, you know, change and they got the change. And I think that's a really encouraging thing. I'm not mad that all these articles are coming out at the same time and this type of, uh, you know, circumstance and consequences happening all at the same time, because it has been, it's been a long time coming and I just can't wait for more people to get the ax because it's comes out that they were effing racists and they prevented, you know, so many talented artists from achieving what they could have achieved, mm-hmm. myself included. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. The fresh-faced and dynamic Theo Hoffman has been described by Opera News as a crowd-pleaser with a solid, burnished baritone. His 2019-2020 season included the title role in Opera Philadelphia's Dennis and Katya, 
by Ted Huffman, and his first professional engagement at L.A. Opera as Papageno in the Barry Kosky production of Mozart's The Magic Flute. He was returning to L.A. after completing the company's famed Young Artist program. Hoffman also received rave reviews for his performance in the American premiere of Philip Glass's The Trial at Opera Theater of St. Louis. Hoffman went inside the huddle with Oliver to talk about a wide range of topics, including their shared love of art song and historically informed performances of Baroque music. You can literally hear Oliver falling in love. Hoffman starts the conversation listing some of the 2020 engagements that were a victim of the pandemic. First, let's hear a bit of Theo Hoffman in Korngold's Piero's Tanzlied. The laundry list. Um, the my last gig before the cancellations was this amazing Joby Talbot piece in Oregon, and it was sort of an amazing one to to end on. Um, but then the next um, the next gig that I that I unfortunately didn't get to do was was yeah my first Saint Matthew Passion as Jesus, and uh, it was to be with uh, Apollo's Fire. It was a tour around um, Ohio and. Um, uh, we were supposed to go to Ann Arbor, to University of Michigan, and it, it was kind of crazy because, unfortunately, like the venue of of University of Michigan canceled before the organization had even decided to cancel. So I actually was the one who said, "Hey guys, like, are we canceled?" Um, and you know, I mean, we've seen that so much where it's like, it's not necessarily coming from the top no fault of their theirs in that case but um yeah it was unfortunate i was i was really looking forward to that it was a memorized saint matthew passion um so i spent mm. that crazy jeanette Sorrell. oh my god i i can't wait to work with her one day i've heard nothing but like great things and um yeah i mean it, it was really a ma- monumental piece of work to like commit that um incredibly difficult recit to memory and mm-hmm. so I mean, up until the day they canceled, I was just drilling it and, uh, you know, we're hoping to reschedule. But so then uh, my big gig in the spring that was canceled was uh, Seattle Opera's La Boheme. 
Um, and uh, that is sort of what um, it, I'm currently in Portland. And the reason I'm in Portland is because I was out here when that gig canceled, um, because I am a person with no permanent home at the moment. Um, oh, you're one of those traveling people. One of the that, suitcase folks. Yeah. So you have you have no address. Like your mail goes to your my parents' house or something? My mail goes to my parents' house in New York. Um, and that's sort of where I was basing when things got shut down. And I was just pretty freaked out about um, living with them while a pandemic was happening. And so I, you know, we, my partner and I decided to... Um, your female, female partner. partner and I, yeah, decided to... Uh, yeah. <laughs> girlfriend is the the normie term that i'm apparently not allowed to use anymore but uh you know oh really am i supposed to stop (laughs) saying boyfriend whenever i get one i don't know um but um we want to erase gender no no. crush the binary no just open it up you know yeah crush the binary for sure okay of course um yeah yeah so we're we're out here and you know the the spring was supposed to be this fruitful time and it 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 wasn't so um, but I had always planned on having the summer off. So luckily I wasn't too disappointed. Um, but of course the fall and next season is a different story. Yeah. Well, I just ironically or coincidentally, the last concert that I saw was Apollo's fire. They did a tour no to Chicago and it was actually an incredible oh, concert. Wow. I loved it so much. And, uh, I watched some of their videos and I know some of the artists they regularly work with and, I mean, I don't want to disparage anybody because I think the the product is so good. But there seems to be like some real intensity in that ensemble, like creativity, but also intensity. Um, take that how you yeah. mean, how you may. I mean, and just sort of an urgency in the fact that like the U.S. has, I don't know, three major Baroque ensembles. And that's kind of it. Or so it feels in Europe. It mm. feels like every street corner has a yeah. Baroque ensemble you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, and they're all amazing um and so it's really lucky for mm-hmm. us that we we have those organizations um you know philharmonia baroque as well it's like yeah so let's talk a little bit about, about that um i understand that you once had a gig with il giardino oh armonico my and my audience knows how crazy i am about early music and drummed and skinned yes. drums and gut <laughs> strings and all those totally. things so what what do you have to say about that and what what piece was it and oh what occasion God. i i just you know i can commiserate because i'm also obsessed with gut strings and 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 skin drum mm. it's like i remember being bitten by the bug of uh the 415 you know and and just like really starting <laughs> to kind of understand why that sound is so special and so i mean the giardino armonico story is like a little cherry on top of my life um because i mean singers will uh sort of woefully admit that we don't get work from auditions but this sort of takes the cake um uh someone sent rolando Viazone, who runs this so uh, let me back up I had never heard of the Mozart Voche because the big thing in Salzburg is the Festspiele in the summer. Um, and for those of you like me a few years ago who don't know about the Mozart Voche or Mozart Week, um, uh, the Stiftung Mozarteum in Salzburg puts on a lit festival every year in January around the composer's birthday. Um, it's currently run by Rolando Villazone, who's on a five-year contract as intendant, and it's like a Mitsuko Chida, Andres Schiff, uh, Daniel Barenboim musical orgy for like 10 days in January and like the best orchestras in Europe come and it's just 
absolutely unreal and I didn't know about it and someone had sent Rolando a video of me singing Monteverdi and I woke up one day from to a surreal email from him inviting me to the festival um, and it was so comically random that I almost thought that I had been pranked by my best friend who knows I'm obsessed with Rolando <laughs> Villazon. Uh, one of the projects he offered and what ended up being the most fun part of the gig was this concert of an early Mozart cantata called Grapmusik, grave music, and an early mass um, with Giardino um, and the RIAS Kammerchor uh, out of Vienna who are just unreal. They're on like every good Mozart recording you've ever heard. And uh, and so Giardino Armonico, which we love from like the Bartoli Vivaldi album, um, mm-hmm. they've got this incredibly dirty, risky sound. And I think that's just something that Giovanni Antonini, their their leader, brings to their aesthetic. He, Giovanni Antonini is also a professional recorder player. And so there's a lot of stuff mm. where he, he's at the center playing recorder and they're just, I mean, it's chamber music oh. at its core, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, and you're saying all the right things <laughs> to me right now. I know. <laughs> it's like literal, like, I mean, Baroque orchestras are like, it's like, pornographic almost i mean it's the most like visceral sound you know it's it's awesome it's dirty i'm so glad you used that word i mean there's there are like cheeses that you can only get in europe that taste like animal (laughs) you know but in the most amazing way and like once you get over the fact that you yeah once you get over the fact that this is a total animal you know savage flavor it's like this and it's so delicious and i mean obviously like um I think in the recording era, Baroque music was generally right played on modern instruments and was uh, so mm, we have this Vivaldi no. sound in our bones that's very clean. Um, and so that's why it kind of gets yeah. a bad rap. Um, but the resurgence of the period, right? I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this, so your, your audience doesn't need me to give a lecture, but it's like the resurgence, like I, I feel like they kind of leaned into that that primal Thing. And that's so exciting. I, I think of also Music Eterna um, with Theodor Karensis has also been like Theodor Karensis, a huge oh my God. inspiration yeah. to me to like make riskier choices. Um, so it's great. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that. No, that Theodor. Please. Theodor Karensis is like, I feel like he is just. He's probably going too far in <laughs> essence, actually, but I love it. It's like, go, go too far. We know we've had so many decades of polite yes. recordings of Mozart and whatnot. Yeah. You know, let's have something that's completely original. And then maybe 20 years from now, say, yeah, ah, if you're going to you make know. a cozy recording, make it different. I mean, make it your own. He's at least he's bringing yeah. that kind of rock star aesthetic to an industry that needs it, you know? So you were saying that you were going to have to memorize, or you yeah. probably already did memorize, did. <laughs> uh, the Jesus role in St. Matthew. Um, and let's just, I'm going to put it out there. You are a very attractive oh, you. person. You're very like nice to look at, but you're also very young looking, yes. and you're also very petite. So you have this sort of boyish quality about you, but, and you look like you're like 19 years right. old. Like Probably you're going to look like that for the next like 10 yeah. years. So... I'm wondering if this is maybe what makes you so appealing to so many, you know, opera directors. Um, and, you know, let's put it out there. A lot of opera directors are gay, too. So, like, you bring out, like, this, bo- like, the fantasy of a, of a boy, <laughs> you know, who can sing. And I'm not, that may sound gross or something like that, but there's something about that 
that makes you very enticing as a performer? Well, I mean, it. it, it Have you ever it's, addressed that, like with your coaches or acting teachers or whatnot? No, so. I mean, I, I think I've been finding in myself in my work. I mean, it's hard for me to be like sort of objective about myself, but it's like I think that like it's nice to have an impish quality um, and the sort mm-hmm. of childish thing that I think that. Like when we think about people we're drawn to on stage, they all, you know, Bartoli, for instance, we just talked about. It's like they all have this sort of like child in, you know, um, eternal child quality. Um, And I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that I have that, but I I, at times I feel like an old man. I mean, just in my heart. But, um, you know, it's 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 nice to have the availability in my body and my heart to kind of bring a youthful energy to, I mean, frankly, to a Fock that is generally thought of to be a built guy, you know, like a big Belcore mm-hmm. dude, you know? So I'm, I'm happy that that has, has afforded me opportunities that have been really unique um, just because of what I look like or what I feel like on stage. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk a bit about your yeah. Fock. I would call you a cavalier baritone. Yeah, I mean, I think that in a way it's like, ah, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to say it's too early to call, but in a way it's like, I think that where I'll end up is somewhere between cavalier and Martin um, because the Martin repertoire mm-hmm. is very small, but I think that um, as soon as someone gives me a Peleas to sing, that will be my comfort zone um, and music like it. Oh, you're ready for it now. I mean, like phys- physically you are Peleas. Yes. Like that's... You're also physically Harry Potter, <laughs> and you're also physically like Spider-Man, the reboot, Love the it. opera, you know? Um, yeah, I mean... Except I except Harry Potter is canceled right now, right? I suppose so. J.K. Rowling, yeah, problematic. Yeah, Awful. I know. Um, oh, those were really horrible to read. Um, but the Cavalier stuff, right, is like Count and Don Giovanni, which um, mm. obviously some people will not cast me as, which is totally fine. I don't blame them. Um, I don't know if I would cast me as Don Giovanni, but I know that if you want a different kind of count or a different kind of Don Giovanni, I'm your man because I'm not the mold. I'm not what you've seen. Um, and so that's, I like people who can. Do you watch, su- please. Do you watch Succession by I any chance? I love Succession. I'm obsessed with Succession. Okay. So Culkin. you would play Don Giovanni. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're the Kieran Culkin, the Kieran Culkin version. Of- <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love Succession. <laughs> <laughs> can't get enough um yeah and so it's like and and what i like to approach with directors you know say in notes say is like this guy's really young we can approach it you know in the beaumarche this guy is actually you know notes say happens a couple years after barber of seville but not that many years and so they're quite young and rosina is still quite young countess is still quite young and so we find this kind of young impish rich guy with too much money and too much power and boredom and he doesn't know what to do with it and he's not mature and that's why we get the story we get which i find fascinating um yeah yeah he's never had parents to tell exactly. him no i love the actually it's my dream role would be to sing wow. the count of aviva i think it's such a complex like authentic role that i know those people so well you know absolutely anyway um you um have recently been featured at Des Moines Metro and obviously at Opera Philadelphia and uh, Opera Theater St. Louis. These are all companies that I feel um, are like the champions of new work and especially American composers. And 
you know, we see works like Missy Mazzoli's Breaking the Waves, like, you know, it's going to get its Met debut, for example, you know. So they're like the incubators for this new era of opera. And you are like the, the baritone is like the castrato of the last, you know, whatever mm. from, from the previous time. Like the baritone is like the muse, excuse me, for American That's opera really composers. So yeah. th- I, I feel like because you are who you are and you're at this point in your career, I feel like you're like the perfect person to speak about these companies and what they represent and how they are, are you know, pushing the envelope for American opera and really uh, they they represent the health of American totally. opera. Totally. And I know there's not a question. I, there's not a question in there. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> hopefully you heard no, I one. love it. Yeah. I mean, I would also group um, Opera Omaha recently to that list. Oh um, yeah, for sure. Mostly because of the um, sort of creative foresight of Roger White's, but also the input of James Dara um, being crucial in that um, equation. And you know, I mean, speaking about each one individually, like Opera Philadelphia is run by some of the kindest, most compassionate leadership I've ever worked for. And that's not to discount any other companies I've worked for, but like they really stand out and they give the keys to the kingdom to everyone who walks into that company and they continue to um, challenge themselves to promote artists who might not otherwise have a platform, who are new to opera, um, who are minorities otherwise. I mean, it's, and they continue to champion them is the point. And, and they don't just, um, they don't, they don't say when they're commissioning works, they don't say, here's what we want, build it for us. They say, what do you want to build? And I think that's crucial in building the bridge between what opera companies or what boards might envision and what audiences actually want. And that's why opera Philly continually gift that you know the festival that keeps giving right is is a continuous they keep having these home run projects because they actually enlist artists and say what do you want to make what feels relevant to you um so that's that's what i have to say about opera philly um you know denise and katia was a a mind-bending amazing experience um and 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 you know, going back to my earlier years, it's like OTSL was my foray into the business through their young artist program. Um, it was the first time I, I mean, festivals are a special animal. Um, Des Moines also included in that like festivals, you know, programming four shows or three shows, whatever in rep, um, that begin to have a dialogue with one another is so attractive to me. Um, it's something you can't really do in a stagione house in the same way. Um, and from an artistic personal perspective, being around that much rep is so valuable and fascinating. Um, and for instance, like last summer when I was singing count there, um, I got to see Roland Wood sing Rigoletto from the first row three times while I was running a show at the same time, doing a role debut, working out the kinks in my own performance, but watching this consummate master of Rigoletto do his thing. It's just like invaluable to me as a human who wants to learn how to do this art form as best as I possibly can. So I've never, I've never heard of him. He's Is unbelievable. He... He's so low key. He's okay. like so rogue. What's his name again? Roland one more time? Wood. Roll. 
Don't even YouTube okay. him. He's got nothing on YouTube. Maybe he does now. I don't know. I shouldn't okay. speak to them. Go YouTube him. But like, he's so low key okay. and actually, um, you know, say what you will, but Stephen Lord was who brought him over to the States um, in a big way. And okay. Rigoletto has been his kind of like breakout role here in the States. And it. Uh, he also did Macbeth for OTSL a couple of years back. And he was supposed to do, believe it or not, Eisenstein for them this summer. Um, and it's just a, huh. a true Verdi baritone, the technique, but also he's a Shakespearean level actor. Um, and so to see his interpretation for, in such a small space, et cetera, et cetera, was great. But that festival thing of, you know, everyone's in this kind of operatic think tank together um, is just a, a model I like kind of thrive in and always have been inspired by. Um, OTSL really took a chance on me with a project that maybe was the first opera to show me that I really fit into the contemporary repertoire. Um, it was The Trial by Philip Glass. Uh, this took place in mm. 2017. Um, I was still a young artist in LA, um, and it was my first principal contract with them, and the role was written so that I never left the stage, and it was like a totally crazy vocal and um, you know dramatic challenge, and I mean, ensemble show, fantastic show. Um, but it started me on this string of Philip Glass gigs that would leave me forever inspired and incensed by the possibilities of that repertoire being part of what we commit to putting on our stages. And that's also where David Devan saw me, and that's why I'm involved in Opera Philadelphia. So it's like, it's all a little, you know, the people who are trying to do this, this you know, that work all kind of find each other, you know? Yeah. That's your brand. I guess so we don't decide our brands. Yeah, Other people but do. I, you know. Well, I still think that you have a big shot if you go and sing for some of these French bro companies or these Italian bro companies. I mean, your your the tone quality is so masculine, but I hear the agility in your voice. I hear the you know the flexibility in your voice, and so that's that. It would be really fun to do more Gluck and Rameau and Lully. You know, I mean, we don't do so much of that here in the States. And so a lot of what I've been trying to do is is make Europe a bigger part of my life. Um, and looks like we won't be able to do that for a little bit, but who knows? Yeah, I think you need to sing for some like Handel right. festival, something like that. So that just a bunch of people can hear you. In the sad thing about like, handle, like bass, you know? the sad thing about handle is that it's generally written. I know for it's bass. all bass rolls. Yeah, and it's the yeah. sad. It's it's yeah. something I I just cry over when I listen to Semele or something like that because it's just like that repertoire is incredible and people make their lives off it. Um, and there's not mm-hmm. much of a place for me, but there's some. I mean, there's Aquila, and um, oh, who's the guy in Cesare? Um, well, Cesare actually can be sung by a baritone, but anyway. Don't. Yeah, don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, tried and not true. So we have a time for one more little sure. mini topic. Um, I'm crazy about art song, and I do want to hear about New York Festival song, how totally. you got affiliated with them. And if you have anything to say about Julia Bullock, I saw a picture of you oh, and yeah. her. I don't know if you guys were doing some, but I'm, we're crazy we about cool. her on this show. And uh I just want to know what anything about her. <laughs> Tell us her secrets. Tell you Julia Bullock's <laughs> secrets. Well, she would kill me. Um, we're actually working pretty closely together these days to um, 
bring together lots of Juilliard alumni to discuss um, issues in this building. So um, that's been, we've been working quite closely actually these days on some stuff that's non, non-musical. But um, I met Steve Blyer my first year at Juilliard. Um, you know, he immediately became like, a, like an art dad um we coached mm-hmm. every week there for years and you know he immediately saw that i had not just a a knack for art song but a real interest in digging deeper into the rep um you know i bring him some lee hoiby song or something that i had speed learned the night before and he'd patiently read it with me while i can't count to five um you know he gave <laughs> he he gave me um with nifos through nifos um really important early opportunities to perform for New York audiences. And that quickly made me comfortable with the recital format. Um, so that was something I coming out of school, like felt really, um, comfortable in, um, and beyond just performing with them, I recently become involved with some artistic advisement and repertoire planning for the company. Um, and we are currently working, speaking of Julia, we're currently working on a series of virtual concerts for the fall with, um, curated, uh, programs from Steve, Julia Bullock, and myself, respectively. So more information to come very soon on that. But yeah, we love Nifos, and they're doing something very rare um, in in our industry. Do people get into New York Festival of Song who are not Juilliard affiliated? Yeah, I mean, I think that actually that's part of my artistic advisement role in the company is that like I'm traveling around a lot. And I hear singers and I'm able to bring them to Steve. And I know that I'm not the only one. Like, you know, Kate Lindsay's on that board and Julia's on that board. Sasha Cook's on that board. Paul Appleby's on that board. You know, we're all we're all where we are and we hear great young artists who Steve may not be privy to. And so we bring them to his attention every time he's coming around to casting a season. Um, So that's a real joy because I discovered recently, you know, that I have a love for casting and that's a great you know other thing that i can do when i'm done singing and when i want to be in one place and have a family um that's something i've discussed with with your female partner yeah. um that's something i've discussed already with like my bosses especially josh winograd at la opera who um has been a champion of mine for for years as a singer but he's also a former singer himself um and though he got into artistic admin for a different reason than I probably will, um, it's cool to be able to already be talking to people who hire me as a singer about what I can contribute to the industry otherwise, which is empowering. It's amazing. Nice. And it, it's making you aware of other people and what they're bringing to the table. And I find like people who are your age, I assume you're in your 20s. Yeah, I just turned 27 last two oh, yeah. weeks ago are still so focused on themselves that they don't even know that they're right well i you'd be surprised how long that kind of goes on i mean that sort of blinders on sensation goes Mm -hmm. on right as we go into our soloist careers i I see people more and more like into their 30s and 40s you know not with a collaborative spirit and that's too bad because regardless of what you think of it you're collaborating well, I think all these things actually are of a piece, like being at companies yes. like Opera Philadelphia and seeing the collaborative process, doing early music and realizing how important Continuo is and how important, you know, obligato instruments and your cantata are. And art song, which is like if you don't have a pianist there, you're not doing anything, you know. 
And it's so all of it is different than standard opera where you get up and sing Quantum and Bow and you are really trying to make it about yourself and after everybody else. Yeah, way you know? to tie it together. I mean, that that's really it. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to tie it together because I actually have one more yeah. question to ask you. And it's about your uh, either acting training or maybe gymnastics <laughs> training. I'm not sure what your dancing training. There's Being something about your performance. You're very dynamic you. physically. And I just want to know where that comes from, if you can attribute it to any specific training or s previous non-singing skills. Yeah, I mean, I, I I was kind of into theater in middle school and high school, but I really came to Juilliard quite locked up physically. Um, and that's for so many reasons. I would say 70% of that is New York City as a child. Um, but, you know, Mary Birnbaum at Juilliard and um, Gene Slater and John John Petro, these were like acting slash movement teachers I had there. And they, they have you in movement and acting basically the entire time you're there. And I mean, hmm. some of it's painful because you're doing it. I mean, it's the end of the day and you have two hours of movement training. You know, it's like, it's tough at the end of a day of like theory class and like, you know, music history. But like it, it really did have an effect. And I, I was so happy that when I came out of there, I felt like that stuff had had some sort of effect. You know, it's just nice to see, you know, four years of incredibly difficult work, like actually come into your professional life. Yeah. So I, I, I would attribute Juilliard to that. All right, then. So it ends up being the way we're closing this interview is that it's one long commercial for Juilliard. <laughs> sure hope not. But but they <laughs> no, I mean, I don't I never want to be like an institution made me, but like I went there with the intention of using that program to 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 learn what I needed to learn. Um and I did that. Well, your website is theohoffman.com, theohoffmanbaritone.com or just theohoffman. People can also find me, find me on Instagram. Tales of Hoffman is my my handle. Um, nice yeah <laughs> and we're looking forward to your uh september festival of song thing you're on yeah more info to come i have a uh for those of you who are interested in the virtual content uh i have a thing with seattle opera going live uh late july um with brad moore it'll be recital of jonathan dove and guastavino and barber and uh oh i'm uh trying out uh Yeletsky for the first time that'll be fun you know what better place than the internet nice. to try out <laughs> new rep right <laughs> and the longest phrase in baritone exactly canon. <laughs> yeah no kidding um well thanks for having me on it's really a pleasure i will lift up my voice to the lord singing loud aloud for the lord is my shame the shade upon my right hand, and the sun shall not smite me by day, nor the moon by night. Blessed is the man who praises him, loud
Opera Class, Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. If Americans know one fact about Marian Anderson, it's that she sang in defiance on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1939. But that performance was not her first time confronting racism in such a spectacular manner. In a must-read article in The New Yorker, Kira Thruman writes about how throughout the 30s, Anderson stared down opposition in Nazi Germany and fascist Austria. A link to that article can be found on our website, operaboxscore.com. In an op-ed for the New York Times, Anthony Tomasini has called for the end of blind auditions, arguing that the practice holds back musicians of color, which are hugely underrepresented in orchestras around the U.S. He argues that orchestras should instead out diverse points of view and talents, quote, rather than passively waiting for representation to emerge from behind the audition screen. A blog post from tenor Nicholas Pond highlights anti-Asian racism in the classical music world. Quote, Asian musicians, particularly in the instrumental and symphonic world, sometimes enjoy a basic privilege that many of our Black, Middle Eastern, and Latinx colleagues are not often extended, seeing more than one other person who looks like us in the room. Nonetheless, we face racism and have had to overcome xenophobic prejudices in order to be taken seriously as musical artists. And, like our other colleagues of color, we are barely represented in the administrations making the hiring decisions. Find a link to that blog post on our website. The world of early music isn't exempt from systemic racism either. An article by Leslie Kwan, the founder of L'Académie Baroque Orchestra in Boston, says that a revolution is at hand in the early music world. Quote, thanks to COVID-19, the racial pandemic that has been the bane of the United States' existence has finally dropped the scales from everyone's eyes. Early music groups now realize that they can no longer hide behind the historically informed presentation of yore and claim to be woke at the same time. The question is whether they will buy a new canvas and paint a portrait of their entire community. The Royal Opera House has cut its entire team of almost 400 casual staff due to financial constraints caused by the pandemic. It stated that a, quote, voluntary redundancy process was also underway. The Teatro Comunale of Bologna has announced that it could perform its upcoming season in a basketball arena. According to the Corriere di Bologna, the company would perform at the famed Paladozzo in response to the coronavirus crisis and in order to accommodate an audience of about 1,000. It would result in no basketball next season. Aww, sorry, basketball. The English National Opera has announced its drive-in production of Puccini's La Boheme. The 90-minute version of Puccini's beloved opera will be performed on a raised and covered stage with large screens also relaying the performance. Audience members with no cars can book an Uber box or come on a bicycle. Performances will be held from September 19th through the 27th. But if Wagner's your cup of tea, and you know, it's mine, a reduced version of Das Rheingold was performed last month in a parking lot compliments of the Deutsche Oper. Hanover State Opera also did an outdoor production of Frank Martin's La Vin Ebe, creating a possible template for German opera companies to follow in the era of COVID. The National Association of Teachers of Singings 
preliminary report on aerosols was released last week testing the safety of various methods of music making. The report notes that singing with a mask does prevent many aerosolized particles from escaping, but they're not totally effective and that some instruments spread more particles than others. The report also stressed that these results were preliminary and that sample sizes were low. Tapestry Opera has unveiled its latest innovation, box concerts. Through October 1st, Canada's leaders in new opera are delivering curbside concerts throughout Toronto, performed live from Tapestry's custom-made box stage. The concerts will be free for communities, frontline workers, and care homes, and feature the real-life faces and voices of leading Canadian talent. Deutsch, Gramophone, and Z2 Comics are teaming up to reimagine the life of Beethoven through a graphic novel intended to celebrate his 20, 250th birthday. Across 144 pages, readers will get a chance to experience the life of the icon through a series of striking visuals from a series of artists to be announced with Brandon Montclair signed on to write the graphic novel. L2 Artists has announced a new digital initiative aimed at helping Black, Indigenous, and people of color who are interested in, in entering the field of artistic management. Ten lucky participants will enter a new digital training program over Zoom throughout the first week of August, during which they will engage with several major members of the opera industry. Exit stage right, Stefan Paul Sanchez, founder of the European Chamber Opera and Grand Opera Thailand, passed away on July 18. He was 65. For some good news, the Dallas Opera announced today that its TDO Network, a digital performance platform launched in March, launched in March, has topped 9 million views on Facebook, making it one of the most popular opera company-run media channels in the world. Opera America has announced that not the nine companies that will be awarded $100,000 in grants for commissioning operas by female composers. The recipients include Beth Morrison, excuse me, Beth Morrison, Boston Lyric Opera, Boston's Guerrilla Opera, New York's Here, Houston Grand Opera, Opera on Tap, Opera Orlando, Opera Philadelphia, and the America American Opera Project. That's a lot of opera. Congratulations to all. Opera America, we are still waiting for the $100,000 for podcasts about opera that also provide a great service to the community. And Aria Code, let's face it, doesn't need any money. Finally, on this day, Monday, July 20th, on eight, in 1877, it was the birth of Latvian dramatic coloratura tenor Hermann Jadlucker and Riga. In 1895, the birth of soprano, Spanish soprano Mercedes Capsir in Barcelona. In 1923, the birth of Italian bass baritone Franco Calabrese in Palermo. And in 1947, the birth of French soprano Colette Alliot-Lugas, a Mozart specialist and an early adopter of early music. And that's your two-minute drill. That was a little bit of Rossini, sung by the Latvian tenor Hermann Jadlocker. 
You know, there's never a chance to talk about this guy, so I'm glad we finally had an on this day hit on his birthday. Thank God we are recording on his birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, her mom. Um, no, he's one of those singers that I've always known about, but it just it never comes up. But he is really one of the OG, you know, color tour tenors um, way before being a color tour tenor was fashionable as it became in the aughts. So, yeah, mm. uh, 120 years ahead of his time. And he also had a pretty big voice. He was able to sing repertoire much more robust than your Rossini's and your Mozart's. And even with that grainy recording quality, it still sounded easier than a lot of the like mid-century. I know. What, I mean, what legato he had, and what like fast <laughs> articulation. I was always impressed by that. Well, Oliver, you botched the bit about the Dallas Opera Network, so now we're never going to make it onto the platform. That's why. <laughs> Seriously, nine million views. That is, uh, that is extraordinary to think that they've done that in in four months. And we're not jealous at all. There's nothing to be jealous about, man. We want to rise with the ranks, not yeah, but a rising tide, Weston. But remember, we just grab right onto those coattails and see where it takes us. Remember I, that I, one million of those views is me looking for shirtless images of Michael May. So it's really just, <laughs> it's really just eight. So. In Weston, I don't know if you're a gamer or not, but I know you're a comic book guy. So you must be just <laughs> having wet dreams about this. I'm so excited for this edgy graphic novel adaptation of Beethoven's life. Like, well, well, I'm excited about the graphic novel, but I think what we're all really excited for is the bloated four-hour director's cut Zack Snyder version of the graphic novel, <laughs> which I'm sure will be coming out in about four or five years after uh, this is finally published. My, my headcanon on this graphic novel is that the ghost of Beethoven was so angry that he didn't get 900 concerts celebrating his birthday this year. <laughs> forcing everyone to read about his life. <laughs> Weston, riddle me this. If it mm. wasn't Beethoven's 250th birthday, like, would we really be doing a comic book about him? Shouldn't there be other composers that we should be doing comic books about? Or has Beethoven earned it? Uh, it's one of those things. It's become a bit of a meme lately to uh, a poke fun at Beethoven, which I think is a little bit mean, but also he's dead and it's fine. Uh, I, I think that... Uh, I, I would love to see just a really, really, really edgy, like, um, sort of like uh, manga, romance manga about the love triangle between Brahms and Clara Schumann and that 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 whole deal. That's what I really want to see Wait, in a comic book. Like, like Japanese tentacle porn? <laughs> I'm, I'm so confused right only, now. Only in my fan fiction, George. Okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to cut you off on that. Um, so Nicholas Pahn and uh, this author who wrote for the uh, early music. Uh, Leslie Kwan. Leslie Kwan. I mean, this is stuff that we all know about, but, you know, it's not just opera. It's pervasive throughout classical music. And I have to agree with Nicholas Pahn that well, he's biracial, so I feel a special kinship with him. Um, yeah, I, I, I have had experiences where I was the only person of color on an admin team or in, you know, whatever, in a marketing department or in an education department because the pipeline is filled with white people who gave up singing or who chose arts administration in the first place. But, you know, there are so many more white singers out there and they all need jobs too. So they end up going into administration. 
And um, some of them, you know, climb the ranks and they're head of their Devo departments or head of their marketing departments or head of their education departments. Um, yeah. So we need more failed singers of color. <laughs> to <And> a, bl- <laughs> a clarion call for, for, the, for the current generation. <laughs> but uh, early music is particularly rough because... You know, for a long time, early music has been this place where, and this is, I don't believe this, this is not my feeling, but early music is the place where people went who never really learned how to use their voices fully and who always like had more of like a diminutive sound. And that's where people who still wanted to sing found themselves, which nowadays that's not the case. But I see how that might have been, might have given early music the reputation. And same thing for people who adopted, you know, playing the recorder or the viol or whatnot. Um, so early music is filled with white people as well. And early music America has a diversity and inclusion task force. And I think it's populated with one person of color. (laughs) And and a lot of those pieces are just so strictly formal that the easiest way to present them is in, in the original, as close to the original presentation as possible, which if you are not an open-minded person or, and, or a not, uh, imaginative person can be a really easy excuse to not have to do any work to try to figure out how to make this uh, an open invitation for the entire arts community and non-white people to participate in it. Absolutely. And then there, I feel like there's also uh, a temptation to, because uh, uh, you know, you, you see this a lot where uh, you have this layer of plausible deniability that happens a lot, not just in opera, but in theater in general, when you're working with a lot of classic works um, that, you know, like, like the big example I always hear in the, in the sort of straight theater world is uh, Shakespeare, where you have uh, audience members or casting uh, directors complaining about, oh, this wouldn't have been a black person playing this role in 1600. And you're like, well, one, not necessarily true. Two, that is that is something we can leave at the door. That's not a part of the tradition we need to bring forward, uh, even uh, even in something that's uh, historically informed in performance. There's no reason to hang on to that legacy of ra- of racism, of sexism. There are good things in the music, in the sounds, in the text that can be brought forward, but they need to be approached with a critical eye, with, uh, with, an, with the realization that even though these, these were written hundreds of years ago in some cases, they're still being presented now. Uh, well, not right now because of COVID, but <laughs> in the hypothetical platonic now, uh, they, they still have to have uh, relevance and artistic resonance and utility for um, marginalized performers and administrators. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, I feel like a lot of a lot of uh, racist, you know, directors kind of hide behind sometimes. You know, uh, historic accuracy in um, you know, and the conflation of that and racism, I think, is something that is just not valid and something that we need to stamp out. You know, I gotta hand it to Bologna for considering performing its upcoming season in a basketball arena. I want to see some pictures of the famed Paladozza. And can I say that's the most on-brand story we've ever had here <laughs> in Opera Box Score? Well, we had was, an on-brand guest last week, but you weren't there, so. Uh, I missed it. I was on vacation in the middle of the plague. I, I, clear, I mean, I, there is no basketball. 
well, there might not be any basketball next season here in the U.S. with the NBA. But if I had to pick between opera or basketball, but I couldn't have both because they were occupying the same space. <sighs> Man. <laughs> you very uh, obviously did not make a choice there. Is it because you're afraid of what our listeners would say? I'm not afraid of what the listeners say. I, I'm afraid that more of them would be with me than I might like to admit. Probably. <laughs> they would rather they'd rather watch a little bit of of hoops. All right, let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, thanks for hanging out with us on the show this evening. A great crew, a great team, a great Theo Hoffman. We're, Good call, bad. We're trying Oliver. to we're trying to keep it tight in preparation for getting back in the studio. One day. So, um, One day. <laughs> my good call is just going back to the top of the show. Uh, thank you, friend of the show, Russell Thomas. And thank you, future friend of the show, singer who I adore so much, I can't wait for her to be our guest, Julia Bullock. Um, let's just, you know, have more stuff like that. And let's, let's get rid of these. <laughs> Got it. Tighten that. Got to tighten that up before we get back on the air, too. <laughs> uh, I, I got a good call this week, which is to the future, where an opera about Marian Anderson being a Nazi hunter is surely going to be in development. Uh, oh. That story from The New Yorker, we, we didn't touch on in the two-minute drill, but everyone should read it because it is so amazing. And she's a national treasure that we deserve to talk about more. Weston Williams. Uh, my uh, good call is that uh, there is a coronavirus vaccine in Oxford that appears to uh, have worked for at least two months now, and no one's grown any extra limbs or anything. So uh, maybe uh, maybe things are looking up. <laughs> good luck, everyone. And I got a bad call. You know, here in Chicago, as with many cities in America and the world, we are seeing layoffs in performing arts education, excuse me, performing arts organizations, theater, dance, opera and what's truly scary is that these layoffs are now becoming permanent right so that it feels like the boards of these organizations these not-for-profit organizations do not see any imminent return to normal operations in other words the excrement just took on an air of verisimilitude all right that's it for this week's edition of america's talk radio show about opera our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, in Weston's capable hands, we're at Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera in the lake, the pool, or just the sprinkler. We're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, July 29. More opera headlines, more hot takes, maybe more reckoning. Join us. <laughs>